Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to the fifth book in the New Testament, the book of Acts. And when you find the book of Acts, I'd like you to find Acts chapter 2. I'm beginning a brand new series this morning, a little bit of a summer break. For those of you who are guests of ours, we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse, and we're going to jump back into that in a few weeks. But we wanted to hit pause and do something significant in the month of June. At the conclusion of this month, the last Sunday of this month, we're going to have one of the most unique and special services I believe we've ever had here at Church at the Mill. And that's no small statement because our worship team and the team around them do such a great job of bringing to bear the truth of God's Word through worshipful experiences. But on the Sunday, June 26th, we're going to enjoy a special celebration of the Lord's Supper and of baptism, perhaps like you've never seen before. So what we wanted to do this month is to enter into a series of sermons simply called Confessions. And the reason we're calling the series Confessions is that our church believes that the ultimate and final authority for all things in relationship to the Lord, to worship, to his church, to you and to I, is the Word. And the Bible lays out two special ceremonies, two special ordinances of the church. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both of these are living, active, physical confessions of our faith. When we think of confessions, it can have a negative and a positive ring. Of course, the Scripture tells us that when we fail the Lord, when we fail others, when we sin against God, we are to confess our sin. And the the great joy of the gospel is knowing that when we confess our sin for the Lord and ask for his forgiveness, he gives it to us graciously and mercifully. But there's also a positive part of confession, and that is confessing the things we believe are true. Truth matters. Truth is not relative. Truth is not your truth or my truth. Truth is truth. It does not change. And the truth that we confess in our faith in Jesus, in the blood that we sang about, is seen beautifully through these two ordinances, the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And so this morning, I'd like to do something rather unique. In fact, if you know me at all, you know that my heartbeat is to walk through the Scriptures verse by verse. It's called biblical exposition. However, there are times, as your pastor, where I will pause and teach on a subject from the standpoint of all of God's Word. And that's what I'd like to do this morning. So if you're a guest of ours, this is a unique, but it will be a beneficial message for you because whether or not you ever choose to worship with us again, you will know what the Bible teaches about the act of baptism. Many of you would say to me this morning, you remember your baptism. Many of you, I dare say the majority of you, are baptized followers of Jesus. And therefore, you may remember the church you were baptized in. In the spring of 1986, my father baptized me. I have the picture if you'd like to see it. This is right after I was baptized. Shady Grove Baptist Church in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, where there were more deer than people. I did my best to end as many lives of deer as I could as a little boy. But You can see my hair is still wet from having just been baptized. And to the left is my father, who today is 69 years old. Today's his birthday. And so I'm excited and thankful for him. His last year in his 60s, this morning I sent him a link to the YouTube video of the song Summer of 69 and said, happy birthday, Pops. And to my right in this picture is my grandfather, who's still living today very much. He's my last living grandfather. And these two men were men of great faith and influence for me. And there you see, right after my baptism, my grandfather was presenting me a gift of a brand new Bible, one of which I'm sure I didn't read as much as I should have as a little boy. But I think about that picture and what it means in my life. Look at the Sunday school enrollment, 57 in this mega church I was born into. And we had 39 that day, and 17 of them actually studied their lesson. And we had about $7,500 given uh, to the building fund ever, not that week, ever, $7,500. Many of you may have that past history And I think about the passage I want to read this morning. 
a passage that I would entitle in a very quick sermon, Be Baptized, and Be Baptized. In the book of Acts, Jesus has died, he's resurrected, he's ascended to heaven. He promised that upon his ascension, he would send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls during a very special ceremony called Pentecost. It was the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was not a place. Pentecost is a special festival on the Jewish calendar. And therefore, on the day of Pentecost, our neighbors and friends in charismatic churches, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit later in our book of 1 Corinthians study, and I'll help you understand what we believe and what we, not, what we don't believe about the activity of the Holy Spirit in the church. But our friends and neighbors who love the Lord Jesus in churches that uh, emphasize the works of the Holy Spirit, some ways we believe, some we don't affirm, they would call themselves Pentecostals. They get that name from this moment in history on the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit fell. I share in common with my Pentecostal brothers and sisters in the faith a deep need for the Holy Spirit, a deep love for the Holy Spirit. In fact, I want to see the Holy Spirit work freely in our church. We should not be afraid of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit fell and birthed the church. <clears throat> And when this was happening, people asked, what is taking place? And Peter stands up in Jerusalem, and he preaches the first mass proclamation of the gospel post-resurrection. In fact, in one sermon, on one day, a megachurch was born right there in Jerusalem. 3,000 and more were saved. And when he gets to the end of the sermon, the Bible picks up in Acts chapter 2 and says these words in the 37th verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Of course, any preacher would want people to say that when he preaches. What should I do based on this word? Forgive me, I'm struggling this morning with my voice. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. So right out of the gates, the very first time the gospel was proclaimed to a large audience, the first invitation is to repent and be baptized. Now look what he goes on to say. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Notice the order in which this happens. You recognize your need for Jesus. You come to Jesus by faith and repent of your sins and trust him as your Savior. You act where you actively, outwardly show your inward repentance through baptism. And in the midst of this moment of salvation, God graciously gives you his Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful picture in just a few sentences of how the life of a Christian begins. The passage goes on to read these words, verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word. Now, there are people who identify as Christians in certain sects, not sex with an X, get your mind out of the gutter, sex, C-T-S, in certain sects who teach you must be baptized in order to be saved. In other words, if you're not dipped in water, you are not saved. For those of you who are familiar with that tradition, it primarily exists today in the church of Christ. Now, even within the church of Christ, there have been those who have rejected that teaching. It's called, long word alert, don't, don't be afraid of it, it's called the teaching of baptismal regeneration. And what it means is, is that it means you must be dipped in water in order to be saved. I'll give you two or some prominent examples. All the boys from Duck Dynasty are Church of Christ guys, and they would believe you must be saved, you must be baptized in order to be saved. I don't question their love for the Lord. I would very much disagree with their understanding of Scripture in this case because baptism is an act I can do. Over the years, I've had the privilege of baptizing hundreds, maybe thousands of people. 
many of you have participated in baptism by allowing a minister to hold your nose and to dip you underwater. Water in a baptismal pool, water in a creek, water in a swimming pool, but you were dipped in water. The one thing I know about baptism is that our facilities director fills up the tank. One of our pastors educates the candidates. We hand them a t-shirt like the one I'm wearing today. We hand them a handkerchief and a towel, and I physically baptize them. I don't need the power of God to do that. It is an act of human will. If you teach you must be baptized in order to be saved, you are reducing salvation to something humans do. We don't save people at Church at the Mill. Only Christ does. And I think this passage clarifies when you look at what it says in verse 41. So those who received his word, those who received the word of the gospel, Then they were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. But nevertheless, even though we do not believe you must be dipped in water to be saved, we cannot allow that to diminish our significant faith in the act of baptism. In other words, baptism is extraordinarily important. It matters. It's significant. It is the first act of obedience commanded by God. Everybody has funny baptism stories. Everybody knows of times where you've gone and watched a baptism service and you've seen something hilarious take place. My favorite is my friend Joel, who is a minister and a missionary in Southeast Asia. But while he was in college, he was pastoring a small church in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas. As a young man in his early 20s, he led a big guy to the Lord named Bubba. Bubba was big. Almost all Bubba's I know are big. It's kind of the prerequisite for being a Bubba. If you're a skinny Bubba, you need to belly up to the table and grow into your name. (laughs) Bubba was an adult. Bubba was given the white gown that every Baptist church handed you when you got baptized. You know, they had three or four in the back. So they found the biggest gown they could for Bubba. Joel was so nervous, he was in the water, he had rehearsed. I've trained many young pastors to baptize, and it is rather nervous when you're doing it for the first time, and and the baptismal pool was almost to the point of the overflow valve. Now, do you know the physical properties of displacement? (laughs) When Bubba stepped into the water to come down, you know the baptismal pool had to be that little box behind the choir, you know, with that gold curtain they pulled back, and the glass come across, and the water was just right at the edge of the glass. Is it just me? That's how I grew up, right? And so Bubba stepped into the water. When he did, that water started to rise. But also, you know this if you've been swimming this year, sometimes the way you jump into the water in a loose-fitting bathing suit, air will get trapped. When Bubba stepped into that water, his gown filled up with air. As he did, the water began to flow into the overflow valve. No problem there, except for the fact that this overflow valve was rather old, and it created a vacuum, and the sound was rather gross. In fact, it sounded something like this. So my friend and pastor and missionary friend standing there, Joel, the whole congregation's watching Bubba walk into the baptismal pool And over the little sound system is, (laughs) as Bubba has air coming into his gown. Joel doesn't know what to do. He's standing there. Bubba gets nervous. Bubba finally said, preacher, that ain't me. And that's why you don't skip church. You just never know what you may see. Why does it matter, though? Like, why why should every member of a baptizing church understand baptism? I think we are in a day and time where you just can't assume that every ceremony stands alone and is not significant in its meaning. I think there are many people who file in and file out and 
never grow their understanding, their theology. Theology is not for professors and pastors. It's for all of us. Every day you're watching theological issues play out before your minds. In a few weeks, I'm going to take you into the book of Genesis, me and several pastors in the church. I'm going to show you in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 that literally every answer to every societal question is answered. The question about creation, the question about gender, the question about sexuality, the question about sin and sorrow. First three chapters of the Bible tell you everything you need to know. And so as a biblically literate people, as a church that understands the significance of what we do and why we do, I want you to know what you should know biblically about the subject of baptism. Because Peter said, repent and be baptized. Now, there's a lot of ways we could structure this, but very quickly this morning, let me answer five questions. If you're a note taker, you're going to love this message. Five questions worth answering about baptism. Question number one, why do we baptize? But why, why, why do we do it? There are a lot of reasons that you'll see later, but here is the number one reason, because Jesus told us to do it. Jesus commanded it. We do what Jesus says. If we don't do what Jesus says, we sin. So, so the life of a Christian, the life of a Christian church, the life of a Christian pastor, the life of a Christian community of believers, even larger than one local church, really is defined by what did our Savior tell us to do? Remember the Great Commission? Matthew chapter 28. Many people go to this as the purpose statement for the church, rightfully so. Go therefore, Jesus has just said, all power and authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all Nations. So there it is, the command. We make disciples, make followers of Jesus. Notice Jesus didn't say make Christians. He didn't say make Baptists. He didn't say make Methodists. He said make disciples. Disciples are committed followers. They're lifelong learners. They don't want to make a bunch of people raise their hand, check a card. I want people to step over from death to life, trusting Christ, being saved, as Peter uh, showed us in this passage this morning I read a few moments ago. And upon salvation, I want the trajectory of their life to be spent pursuing the ongoing intimate relationship with Jesus where he gives the orders and we follow them, where he gives the love and we return it by giving it to others, where he gives us the power to live our lives. In other words, the distinctive mark of a Christian community is that they are Jesus' people. They love him, they adore him, they worship him, they trust in his finished work on the cross, and they obey his commands. So he said, make disciples. Fortunately, he doesn't stop there. He actually gives the rather simple yet lifelong task. Here's how you make a disciple. Once you share the gospel and God graciously saves people, that's a mysterious act that only he can do. We can't force a single child that comes onto our campus this week at Vacation Bible School to pray to receive Jesus, nor would we. We actually work really hard with our counselors and our teachers and our adult volunteers to make sure they understand. We want kids to understand the gospel but we don't want kids to be pushed into an emotional decision they're not yet ready for. We want people to be saved God's way on God's timing. But once that has happened, then we're handed a baby Christian. Might be a 70-year-old man, maybe a 7-year-old little girl. But we have this brand new creature in Christ. What do we do with them? Jesus told us two steps. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all that I commanded. So in the midst of the command of Christ as to why we exist, the very first act we are to call Christians to participate in and the very first act we are to host and help them participate in is to baptize them specifically in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is commanded by Christ. So that's why we baptize. That's why we require baptism for church membership. That's why we would greatly discourage any person from claiming they have professed faith in Jesus and yet will not be baptized. In just a few moments when I conclude this message, I'm going to ask some of you who have never been baptized to respond today by going to the Connect Corner, both on each end of the concourse, and saying, I want to sign up for baptism today. This is our command, and we want you to do it. Second question. Question one is, 
Why we baptize? Question two, where did it come from? What is the history of baptism? I mean, in our passage today, Peter says, repent and be baptized as if the hearers knew what he was talking about. There are two baptisms referenced in the New Testament. It's important to differentiate them. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a spiritual baptism. This is the reception of the Holy Spirit into our lives. We believe and affirm the scriptures teach that baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon salvation. In other words, when someone trusts in Jesus, just as Paul, excuse me, Peter lays out here, verse 41, so those who received his words and were baptized, they were added to that day about 3,000. And the scripture tells us over and over that upon the reception of the whole, of salvation or from reception of Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. But where did water baptism come from? Well, there's roots all the way back to the Old Testament. In fact, scripturally speaking, just a few examples. In the Old Testament order of the priest, Leviticus 8, 6, Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Now, Moses was given the law of God. It came first in the Ten Commandments, and then that was fleshed out into the law that we have in the Old Testament. But Moses was not a high priest. Aaron was named the first high priest of Israel. And so the priesthood of Israel, the high priests in the Old Testament, were through the Aaronic Aaron, the Aaronic or Aaronic covenant. Aaron was the first high priest. To set Aaron apart for the service of God, we see way back in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus and John the Baptist, men participating in ceremonially washing away their unrighteousness. Not only do we see it in establishing the priest, we see that Jesus had knowledge of this when Jesus was dealing with one of his miracles. And he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent, so he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus acknowledged that in and around Jerusalem, there were special places where the people of God, under the leadership of God, would go and they could be ceremonially made clean. They were to cleanse themselves and wash themselves. In addition to that, there was this idea of God cleansing his people prophesied in the Old Testament. The prophet Ezekiel was talking in the view of God. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So there's this idea in the scriptures, metaphorically, that God's cleansing of our sin is represented by the way water cleanses us of dirt and filth. And then, of course, we see it in John the Baptist. The Bible says in Luke 3, 3, John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So when John came forth preaching, John said the Messiah is on his way. You need to turn back to God. And to represent your turning back to God, come and be baptized with the baptism of repentance. Now John's baptism was a prerequisite to the baptism in Jesus' name that we have today. So where did baptism come from? Well, the short answer is God created it. God created it. God is the one who created baptism for you and for me. Now, what does it mean? What does baptism mean? I think this is where we lose it a lot. I don't think I've said anything that's controversial. I, I don't think I've said anything that, you may have learned something over the last few minutes, but I don't think I've said anything that's hard to see, to agree with in Scripture. However, I do think that we have an incomplete view of what it means for a person to be baptized. What does it mean when someone is baptized? Because if you say, well, it just means they got saved, on one sense, I could argue, okay, well, that's the one-sentence answer. But it's so much more than just that. In fact, when you study the breadth of Scripture and you look at the meanings wrapped up in baptism, here's what it means. Let, let me give these to you. First, when you see somebody baptized, 
It means they've been called by God to be his. They did not save themselves. They were saved by Jesus. See, when you say, I went and got baptized, that's not a bad thing. But you got baptized in response to what the Lord did prior to your baptism. The Bible says it this way. Paul, in writing to Titus, says about salvation, he saved us. This is very important in our understanding of theology. We don't save ourselves. In fact, people who teach that salvation is initiated by human beings always end up teaching that human beings can lose their salvation. The reason that we believe salvation is an act of God that is irreversible is because all of God's acts are irreversible, mine or not. Whatever I do can be undone. Whatever I do, I can fail at. I can halfway accomplish many things. God knows no failure. God does not know how to complete what he begins. Faithful is he to complete that good work he has begun in you. So Titus would say it this way, the book of Titus. Paul says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is important. But according to his own mercy. Now, now notice the language Paul uses. Paul's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about salvation. But listen to the symbolism. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See, there's a reason why baptism so beautifully depicts salvation. That in Christ, when God graciously extends mercy to our lives, he washes us completely. Now, he doesn't wash us with H2O. He washes us with the blood of Jesus. The best representation of that, of course, is being washed in front of the church with water, representing the fact that you have been called by God. So every person you've ever seen baptized, if they are pursuing a biblical baptism, if they are genuinely repenting of their sin and following Christ, they are confessing at that moment, I have been called by God. God saved me. I'm not just straightening out my life. I'm not just doing this to make my wife happy. I'm not just doing this because this is a requirement of the church. God in his grace foreknew, predestined, and chose to extend his mercy to me. He called me. The second thing that we know about a person who's baptized is not only that they've been called by God, it means they reach the point where they confess their sin and their lostness and Christ as Savior and Lord. Did you know the vast majority of the world will quickly confess that they're imperfect? In fact, one of the common denominators of all humanity is we recognize we're not perfect. I find this is a great point of starting a conversation with someone about the gospel. Almost no one with any life experience will try to claim they've never made a mistake. So getting people to confess that they make mistakes, that they are sinners, is good, but it's only half of the confession. Not only do you confess that you are a sinner, you confess before the Lord that because of your sin, you're lost. That there's no hope. There's no chance of you turning things around. You're not going to fix yourself. You're not going to do enough good things to pay penance. There's no hope. You are hopeless. You are lost. One of the lessons of evangelism that we have to learn in our day and age that celebrates sin and belittles the greatness and the holiness of God is that people have to get lost before they get saved. Now, they're already lost, but they don't know they're lost. So a person who's being baptized has raised their hand and saying, not only do I want you to know I'm a sinner, I was lost. There was no hope for me. And then, through God's mercy, through his calling of my heart, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I confessed Christ as my Savior and Lord. I'm not putting my hope in a little Jesus and a little of my good works. I'm not putting my hope in the fact that because I believe in Jesus, I'm better than the next person. No, I have sinned. I am lost. I am in a hopeless estate. But Christ in his infinite mercy has given me exposure to his gospel. I have looked upon Christ. I have believed upon him. And I have trusted not only in his sinless life, but the complete and full work that he did on the cross to pay for all my sins and then to come alive on the third day, defeating the curse of my sin, which is death. So when someone is baptized biblically, they're confessing 
that they are a new person because they have placed their faith in Jesus. Third, it also means that they've been cleansed of their sin completely. Completely cleansed of their sin. I, I, I like the way the Bible talks about this in several passages of Scripture. But in 1 Corinthians, the passage we're in will be in chapter 6 in a few months. And such were some of you. Paul's just laid out a case of wickedness and sinfulness. All kinds of sexual sin. All kinds of societal sins. All kinds of spiritual sin. And then he says, and that's what you were like. And so, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Notice, you didn't wash yourselves. You didn't sanctify yourselves. Past tense, you were washed, you were sanctified, as if it's already been done. It's complete. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So notice these words describing your state. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. So Christ found you. By your faith, he saved you. By his blood, he cleansed you. By his spirit, he made you new. He sanctified you. And through the finished declaration of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has permanently and eternally declared you justified, righteous, worthy of the treatment due his son. And so when someone is being baptized by water, they are professing to the church, just as this water totally washes over my body symbolically, I have been completely and totally cleansed. Good gracious, is anybody grateful for that this morning? Mm. So then, once someone says, I've been cleansed, it also means, and this is the fourth meaning of baptism, that you're created new. So not only is the old person washed, a new creature exists. Paul says it this way to the church in Rome. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? Now, this is important. This matters. Paul is using the word baptized. I'll give you the definition of it in a minute. He's using the word baptized not only to represent that act of faith and repentance, water baptism, but the spiritual act of God baptizing us into Jesus. So, so how does this work? Don't, don't get confused. I, I don't want you to be confused. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, how was I baptized into his death? I got baptized in water, Shady Grove Baptist Church in 1986. I told you that. How was I baptized into his death? Well, let me tell you what happened before I got baptized. I got saved. Now, when I got saved, I remember going to my father and saying, I believe the Lord saved me. And I, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but I, I, I wrestled with that for about two weeks at night, laying in bed, praying for God to save me. I, I don't mean God was slow to save me. I think there was a spiritual battle going on there. I think the enemy knew what God was about to do in my life. I think there was a battle going on there in the heart of an eight-year-old boy. And yet I remember very distinctively when God saved me. And when he saved me, I went and spoke with my father. My father didn't try to encourage me to rush to the waters of baptism. He asked me very probing, very telling questions. He understood this was a work of God. And mom and dad will talk about that in a moment. And so Christ saved me. And so upon that salvation, Christ graciously applied his death to my account. In other words... The death of Jesus, which is sufficient to save all sinners God saves, was applied to me. Now, if you take that from a perspective of my life, I was then put into the death of Jesus. Therefore, baptized into his death. But we didn't stay there. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when we take the candidate under the water, we are literally saying, just as Jesus was taken down by the sins of the world into the tomb, and Jesus miraculously was raised from the dead, so too was this person, Jamie, Johnny, Billy, whoever, so was this person, 
in Christ, their sins were there with Jesus on the cross, and those sins condemned Jesus to death. But the Spirit's power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised them to new life, that they may walk in the newness of life given to us by the blood of Jesus paying for our sins and the power of the Holy Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. So when we baptize, we're saying, just as this person goes in dry and comes up wet, you step into a shower dirty, you step out smelling good. Just as a person who is dirty is washed and then they are declared clean, in Christ, you stepped into your relationship with him filthy and you step out white as snow. And then there's one more meaning. When you see somebody be baptized, it means that not only are they created new, they're connecting with their church. This is the one that I'm afraid has been lost. We're not only baptized into Jesus, we're baptized into the church. Now, now we are a Baptist church. That is our background. Our founders were Baptists. I was born and raised a Baptist, educated at two Baptist seminaries. I have two Baptist theological degrees. My theology is Baptistic. I have many, many friends who love the Lord Jesus, who are Pentecostals and Presbyterians and a number of other denominations. And we rejoice in our fellowship in Christ. I don't have any desire to spend any energy condemning or throwing rocks at other denominations at the same time, if you're going to fellowship with this church, if you're going to be a part of this church, if you're going to listen to my preaching, you, you need to understand our theology is Baptistic. It's not Baptistic because you think about Baptist down the road or Southern Baptist or Independent Baptist or American Baptist or Free Will Baptist. I'm talking about the word baptism. This is, of course, why we're called Baptist. It is a distinctive of our denomination that we view baptism this way. And we believe that baptism is not only this act commanded by God, it is the first act of someone saying, I want to be a member of the church. Because by default, when you say you are a member of the church, you are saying, I am a member of the body of Christ. I'm a member of the body of Christ globally. I'm a member of the body of Christ eternally. But I'm also a member of the body of Christ locally. I need a church family. In fact, when Paul was talking about this subject in the book of Galatians, he says, For in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Paul's fighting for unity. He's saying there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So notice that. Notice the two unions. The one union is that when someone is baptized, they are saying, I'm in union with Christ. He has taken away my sin. I stand forgiven. I'm a child of the king. I'm an heir to the throne. Heaven is my home. My name is in the Lamb's book of life. So baptism is the declaration of that union. But it's also the declaration of saying, I'm not only with Christ, I'm with Christ's people. I'm not only connected to the head of the body, I'm now a part of the body. One time years ago, I was teaching some college students the Bible outside of church, and a young lady raised her hand, and she said, and she was not being in any way uh, uh, disrespectful. She was uh, searching, seeking. Very shy young lady. Crowds intimidated her. I understand that. And she said, Pastor, can I be baptized privately? It was a great question. I could tell her, her wheels were spinning. Of course, with the respect she gave me her question, I certainly gave her the answer as sensitively as I could. And I said, no, ma'am. It's not a private act. It's not for just you and Jesus. It is the public profession of your faith, most often done in front of your church family, saying, I not only belong to the Lord, I belong to you. It is, in essence, the first act of church discipline. Now, people think, oh, church discipline. This was such an uplifting sermon. Then he mentioned that. It's because often we think church discipline is when the pastor calls you. I have people today, I call and they go, what did I do? I'm not the church principal, the church pastor. And yes, there are times where we confront one another over our sin. I, I get that. 
That's a part of church discipline. But church discipline is just saying that anything in my life worth accomplishing, anything physical, anything business-wise, anything education, anything athletically, you talk to any coach, you talk to any athlete, talk to any businesswoman, talk to any businessman, talk to any student, talk to any medical professional, they will tell you that if you're going to be good in your field, you've got to discipline yourself. You have to put yourself in a position to grow. You have to put people over you that know more than you, not that they can remind you of what you don't know, but that their knowledge transferred to your life boils up your knowledge. There's not a physician in the room who didn't learn from other physicians. There's not an engineer in the room who didn't learn from a professor of engineering. There's not a ball player in the room who didn't learn from a coach who knew more about the sport that you were learning from. We all understand we must discipline ourselves by putting ourselves under the authority of others who then will help us grow. Well, spiritually, there are no lone rangers. We put ourselves in and under the leadership of the church saying, I need you to help me follow Jesus as you follow Jesus, and we do it together. And baptism is that first act of saying, I'm connecting my life with other baptized believers, and I want you to know I'm now a Christ follower. So hold me accountable. Pray for me. Encourage me. Remind me to be there. Build me up. Strengthen me. And if in the rare occasion you find that I'm straying and you have the relationship with me that allows you the equity to do this, come to me and say, sister, brother, come back to the Lord. I appeal to you, come back. All that begins when someone makes that public profession of faith. So the next time you see baptism, which will be in two weeks on this stage, think about all those meanings wrapped in it. Just a few more questions real quick. Question number whatever. What number am I on? Put it on the screen. Question number four. <laughs> How is it abused? How is baptism abused? This matters. Listen to me very quickly. First abuse is to refuse it. Even though baptism does not save you, it's commanded by God. Therefore, to not be baptized is a sin. So if I ever met someone who says, oh, I'm saved, I just don't want to be baptized, I would have some serious questions about the authenticity of their faith. Not because they'd not been dipped in water, but because they wouldn't obey. I mean, Peter didn't mince words. He says, you repent and go public with your repentance and be baptized for the remission of your sins. What, what did Jesus say about professing him in front of people? He said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The thief on the cross never got baptized, but he acknowledged. <coughs> he said, Lord, when your kingdom comes, remember me. I'm not ashamed anymore. I want you to know, remember me. Can you imagine the day he walked into heaven? How'd you get here? Through Bible study? Nope, never been to one. What church you belong to? Never been to church. What'd you do in your life? I was a thief. Why? why? Oh, 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 you must have got baptized. Nope, never got baptized. Well, why are you here? Well, you know, the man on the middle cross said I could come. I came because Jesus told me I could be here. I, I believed in him. And so it is a sin to refuse baptism. Here's the invitation. If you have a relationship with Jesus and you've never followed that through believer's baptism, friend, I want to give you the opportunity to obey him today. And to say, I want to be baptized. Second abuse is not only to refuse it, it's to rush it. Parents, listen to me. Every parent who loves the Lord Jesus wants to see their children love the Lord Jesus. And we know that that moment of profession of faith is so special. We rejoice in baptizing children at church at the meal. But we require every child meet with our children's pastor, take a class on baptism. And we don't baptize until they reach the age of eight. I don't have a proof text for you. Years ago, I went on a journey as a pastor, seeing hundreds of children come to our church, recognizing we needed to set some sort of standard so that we could make sure. So I went and talked to every child development children's minister I knew. And every one of them said, about that second grade year, children begin to understand the difference between abstract and concrete. I could go down to the four-year-old room right now. There's nine of them, I think. I could go down to four-year-old age. Point two, whatever. And I could say, how many of you love Jesus? Every hand would go up. But every hand would go up if I said, how many of you want goldfish? <laughs> and every hand would go up if I asked him about Santa Claus. And every hand would go up how much they love the Easter Bunny. 
And every hand would go up. So we understand that their faith is developing. But their ability to separate the concrete act of water baptism and the abstract spiritual reality of trusting in Christ, most people say, a long round second grade. So that's when we decided at Church at the Mill, we rejoice in any child coming to know Christ, and we don't pick the age. I've seen children at six and seven years old that had a rock-solid understanding of their sin, faith, and repentance. I've seen kids at 11 or 12 that were still wrestling and trying to learn what that looked like. I'm okay with trusting God is far more in love with that child than I'll ever be. And I and you are to assume the posture of encouraging without pressuring. And so we meet with every child and we meet with every candidate. We don't want to rush it. Third abuse is to reduce it. Can I just tell you baptism's not a fad? Broke my heart many years ago when a large church in our state did a big push for baptism. You could sign up for baptism online and you just received an email on the day you were supposed to show up and be baptized. That's not shepherding people's soul. That's not pastoring them. This is not a fad. You can't haul hundreds of kids off to camp and baptize half of them every year. That doesn't make it significant and special. It matters that we don't do it flippantly. We don't encourage our children to do anything else flippantly. You don't ever go to your child and say, pick a college, pick a college. I know you're 12, but pick a college right now. Pick a spouse, pick one out. Here, she, she's had all her shots, marry her. No, you don't do that. Every major decision in your child's life, you prayerfully talk with them about the ramifications of it. While we would never discourage a moment of baptism, we do not want to make it flippant and to reduce it. Next one, we don't want to redefine it. Let me give you the definition of baptism at Church at the Mill. I know this is the definition because I wrote it. Fully immersing a believer into water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as an outward confession of inward faith in Christ and as a significant first act of obedience. Some of you wonder, well, what's he going to do about sprinkling versus immersion? Now, we're Baptist. Where do we get that word from? It's a Greek word. It means baptizo. It means to completely submerge. They used it when they talked about a ship sinking. Two analogies I often use to defend our belief in immersion. Number one, the word means sink. But number two, what do you do with a dead body? Do you sprinkle dirt on it? No, you bury it. You bury it in the ground and then you raise it to life. You hope and pray the resurrection comes to this body. You bury it. Now, the scriptures lay out several examples of this that I believe clearly teach baptism by immersion in water. Here are just uh, a few of them. John 3, 23. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. John had to have enough water to immerse people, and people were coming and being baptized. Another cross-reference that I often share is Mark 1:10, talking about Jesus. And when he came up out of the water, that's what the passage says, literally says, you can't come up out of water that you go, don't go down into. Last one, 1 Peter 3.20. Baptism, which corresponds to this, Peter's talking about the resurrection, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter says, baptism corresponds with the resurrection. I have many friends who have passionate walks with the Lord, who I love dearly as my Christian and brothers and sisters who I lovingly disagree with on baptism. They practice sprinkling. They may even practice infant baptism, which in the scriptures or the study of scriptures is called pedo-baptism. They practice this baptism. I don't have time this morning to tell you the history of that, but I would say that I believe our church's position has a solid grounding in the scriptures, so much so that some of our ancestors in the faith Adoniram and Ann Judson, they were congregationalists, had been baptized through sprinkling. They were traveling to India to minister alongside William Carey, the man on the left. They knew he would ask them why they weren't Baptist when they got there. So they spent the several weeks voyage going to India in the early 1800s studying the Bible. By the time they got off the ship, Adoniram and Judson, one of the fathers of Baptist missions, said, I think I need to be baptized. William Carey baptized him. He got back on the ship, went back to America, 
because he had to raise money from Baptist, and he didn't feel good about taking the money from those who had sent him to be a congregationalist. And so what you find is that when people will study the word, whether or not they ever agree with the Baptist position, they will certainly see our grounding is secure in Scripture. There's just one final abuse of baptism, and that's, of course, to restrict it. I can't imagine churches here in the South years and years ago stopping someone from being baptized because of the color of their skin, but it happened. It's terrible. It's something that should cause us great remorse. The first major conflict in the New Testament church was over race and over whether or not the Gentiles could receive Jesus. And when the Jews saw that they were being saved, you know what the Bible says? I'll put it on the screen in the book of Acts chapter 10. Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And they commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Black, white, rich, or poor, doesn't matter someone's background, doesn't matter where they've been, no matter the depth of their sin, no matter the innocence of their young life. If they profess Christ as their Savior and bear testimony to him according to the word, we should lovingly embrace the opportunity to baptize them. Last question, what does baptism do? One answer, it proclaims the gospel. You, you ever notice how your Catholic friends will wear crucifix? Crucifix have Jesus on the cross. There's a reason why we don't. This is actually not a very good picture, but it's a necklace with a crucifix on it, owned by Bert. He's 70 year old, new member of our church. Awesome guy, serves on our Connect ministry. Born and raised Catholic. So he wore a crucifix all his life. The crucifix comes from the Catholic teaching that there's a certain measure of suffering Jesus still goes through for our sin. It's not a biblical teaching, because Jesus finished the suffering on the cross. And if you need to know how we know that, listen to what Jesus said. It is finished. So in our tradition, you don't ever see crucifixes. You may see an empty cross, but you don't see a crucifix. A few months ago, Bert got baptized. He'd never been baptized by immersion, sprinkled as a baby. Came to know Jesus, wanted to be baptized. He'd wore this crucifix all his life, didn't think anything of it. As he's being baptized, he goes backstage to change clothes. He takes the necklace off, lays it down, and is drying off. Now, this is not a miracle, but it certainly was significant to Bert. When he comes back to look at his necklace, guess what he found? The Jesus figurine had fallen off the cross. The cross was empty. Bert couldn't wait. He couldn't wait to text it. It's a cool story. Is it a miracle? I'm not telling it's a miracle. I'm saying Bert texted us and said, you know what? It's finished in my life. I know I'm saved. I'm cleansed, and the cross is empty. That's what baptism proclaims.